This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With playing with the world's toys, we talk about the mechanics of challenges and ventures. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast Playing with the World's Toys, we discuss the basic mechanics of the Invisible Sun RPG. In this segment, we talk about what is maybe the most basic mechanic, that is how the game uh, handles challenges and ventures. In some ways, this resembles the logic of the Cypher system, where there is a fundamental mechanic, this challenge-adventure system, that applies no matter what the challenge is. So whether you're trying to persuade a guard uh, to let you into a club, whether you're trying to climb a, a wall, or you're trying to punch a ghost, all of these types of challenges are handled with the same underlying mechanics. So you don't have to worry about a social system versus a combat system versus an exploration system or anything along those lines. The same basic operation will apply. For the most detailed treatment of this basic system, we recommend you look at the gate, page 16, in the rule books. But we'll review it here. Uh, The operation begins with every task being given a difficulty rated between 0 and 17. Uh, 0 is a a task that is so easy that it can be done routinely uh, and does not require any sort of die roll. Uh, It can just be done. So if the the difficulty of me walking across my office would be difficulty zero because uh, I can just do that. And there's very little in the way uh, of of, of complications that could arise. And anything that would stop me from walking across my office would basically have to be something like a GM shift, something external that's imposing on what what I'm doing. Like a Lego on the floor? Uh, That could be a GM shift is putting a Lego on the floor and my not looking at the floor. Yeah, the the range from zero to nine is pretty much mundane actions. Um, but I've found that the this this difficulty range is a lot. Uh, hmm, what's the best way to put it? It's a lot squishier than what the cipher system lays out. Right, I, even more so than with the cipher system. Uh, I think there is a lot of gaming the designation to basically figure out how hard do you want this to be and use that rather than some sort of table you could look at to say, well, how hard is it to climb a brick wall versus a stucco wall? And instead of like, eh, I think, I think right now a hard roll is in order. Uh, so let's call that an eight. Uh, also, as we'll see, there's way more that you can do to reduce difficulty in Invisible Sun than was the case in Cypher System. I've I've noticed that as well, yeah. Yeah, even la- larger numbers can be bought down more uh, easily than in the Cypher system where it's not particularly difficult. And that's one reason why the difficulty range goes from 0 to 17. The range above mundane actions, that is 10 to 17, represents the sort of actions that would only be possible through the use of magic. But in a world where magic is everywhere and all of the players have magical abilities, uh, you will spend a, you know, a you might spend a good bit of time dealing with 
uh, not just magic to overcome mundane challenges, but challenges that can only ever be overcome by magic and the accomplishment of tasks that couldn't be achieved by mundane means. Um, somewhat like the power shift mechanic in Cypher System, where you could do things that humans just couldn't normally do, no matter how much training uh, or how lucky they were on their metaphysical die roll. Uh, the difficulty, once a, a GM has decided that this uh, this brick wall is difficulty six to climb or whatever it may be, the GM may communicate that difficulty to the players, uh, much like the Cypher system, the practice of this varies. Uh, I tend to, mo- mo- more often than not, I will just tell my players uh, the difficulty of that action is going to be a five or a seven or whatever it may be. Uh, but s- some uh, GMs may want to uh, kind of keep that to themselves and keep a little bit of mystery to the uh, proceedings by just saying, there's a wall. It's not routine. You'll have to actually roll to climb it. And it looks kind of hard or it looks really hard or it looks like something that no human could could climb unassisted. And you, you could communicate difficulty through such descriptions and keep the difficulty to yourself. I I tend to keep the dif- difficulty to myself when I'm running my campaign, uh, my home game. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly why at this point. It's not something I've thought about too much. But uh, if I had to make a guess, I, I think that my players are much more likely to try things if they don't know how difficult it actually is. Yeah, having that number can kill a little, the, a little bit of the mystery. Yeah, that's another part of it. And so I, I can understand doing that. Um, I tend to I give most of the challenge ratings away because I like the players to have more sense of control that they know what they're getting into. But I can certainly see arguments for either way. And uh, frankly, I, I switch back and forth sometimes when I feel that the I can I, I want to ratchet up the mystery uh, in, in in the particular session at any given time. Mm-hmm. I might say uh, this looks really hard, but I'm not going to tell you how hard. Because you wouldn't necessarily know exactly. And I don't want my players who are good at math to be in the back of their head trying to run probability tables. Um, I want them to say, like, this is really hard. How much are you willing to invest uh, to overcome this challenge? Which is the second part of this basic operation. I guess another thing that I'll use when I decide if I'm going to, you know, reveal the difficulty level. Another... Another thing I keep in mind is how important is it to the player for this action to be successful? Like the more important it is for them to be successful, like not their character, but if the player is really invested in this path that they're taking, I'll tend to reveal the the difficulty uh, if I feel it's important. And something I just thought of that might that might be different if I were not revealing the the challenges. Um, I encourage my players to spend XP or uh, resources for rerolls in the cipher system. Mm-hmm. And one reason that happens, I think, is because I tell them uh, you're going to need to roll a 12 or whatever it may be in a d20. And they know it, that what they know what the target number is and they feel more confident in spending an XP when they know what that target number is. If I just say, nope, you failed, you want to try again, they're much less likely to spend the resources to reroll. That's less important than Invisible Sun. So I'm, you know, I might change the balance I have between revealing challenges and not revealing challenges given the mechanics of this game. Yeah, there is no reroll here. So yeah, there's there's no resource that you can spend in order to try that try that action one more time. 
right? So th th there may be less reason for me to reveal than, than it would be the case in, in, in Cypher system. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But the difficulty is only one half of this equation. The more mm -hmm. complicated half of the equation is how players respond to that challenge. Players, once they're told uh, either numerically or just verbally what the uh, difficulty is, uh, again, whether it's a four or very hard, uh, build what they call the game calls a venture, which is all of the advantages that the player has that they can apply to overcoming that particular challenge. And we'll go through a long list of parts that can be added to a venture, including some typical, but also some uh, more exotic elements to building a venture. Uh, so again, using this simple case of climbing a wall. Uh, Building the venture could first involve uh, applying skills. So uh, characters will have skills. Uh, skills have varying degrees. You can have basically different points in skills or levels of those skills. Uh, if you're trying, you might have three levels of climbing, which means whenever you're trying to climb something, you get three points to your added to your venture uh, because of that particular skill. Uh, we were talking before the recording. We're not quite sure if there's a maximum level of skills. We couldn't recall, uh, but you might want to read for that as you're reviewing the text, whether there's a maximum level of skills. But we, I have seen references to you know three and four levels of skills. This is well beyond the level of skill that's allowed in the Cypher system. So it's something you might want to you know get, get used to, uh, the notion that there's not just train and specialize, but one could be a level three. You could have level three skill in perception, for instance, because that's going to change what's possible for characters. Uh, and uh, how, what sort of ventures people can get up to uh, relatively quickly once they start buying skills using their acumen. Uh, just a note, uh, calling this out here. I'm, I'm looking up the skill cap. There is a cap. Okay, what is the cap? Four. Four is the maximum. Okay. So yeah, it just so happened so... my examples were at the maximum. Great. Okay. Uh, so level one means you are familiar with it. Level two means you're practiced. Level three means you're trained. And level four means you are specialized. And remember that you're rolling a D10. So having a level four skill is a 40% increase in the range of what you can achieve with that D10. That's, that's a big change yeah, it is in very what you can achieve. Uh, so I, I tend to discount the difference between trained and specialized and this setting and think more in terms of probability, but those uh, getting a, a level one versus two, three, and four skill, there are, are, are large differences, especially in skills you're using a lot. Mm -hmm. So have fun editing that back in. Uh, there'll be very little editing. Yeah. All right. Uh, hi. <laughs> this is what the podcasting, you know, uh, in, in the trenches is like, hello audience. Yeah. Hey audience. Uh, thanks for listening to me typing. <laughs> I might be able to get rid of that part. Uh, okay, the second component of the venture are, is circumstances. Again, this is things that can contribute to a player's uh, uh, success in overcoming a challenge. Uh, hypothetically, it could also just uh, it could reduce the chances, but that would really just add to the difficulty rather than adding to the venture. Uh, but if there are um, if the uh, the the wall you're trying to climb has moss on it um, or is uh, pockmarked in such a way that it might be easier to get handholds than it would otherwise be the case. Those could be circumstantial bonuses you could apply to your venture, uh, but that would be negotiated in the story itself uh, and how the, the GM describes uh, the set the, the scene and how much freedom the GM gives to players to set the scene themselves. 
um, I often give players a lot of, of leeway uh, to, if they can think of something that could circumstantially improve their venture uh, and it's kind of fun to describe, I, I let them do it. Yeah, I, I think I do as well. Uh, especially if they don't have any skills that apply to the, the task that they're trying to achieve. Yeah, if someone already had level four skill in climbing, I probably wouldn't allow them to pile on by saying, oh, and here's these coincidental uh, environmental conditions that make it even easier than it would have been. Uh, so yeah, it probably does vary by what other bonuses they're already getting as to how flexible I am in including circumstances. Uh, something that's a bit like skills uh, is you could also employ equipment to uh, handle a particular challenge and equipment like skills have levels. And so you could have a, uh, a climbing equipment that is level one or level two or beyond that. Uh, this might also be a cap of four. I vaguely recall that. Well, now I'm going to have to look that Have to look that up again. Uh, and, all, and, and more edit, editing magic in podcast land. But I'm going to keep talking anyway. Uh, anyway, you would add this bonus. So if you had uh, two levels of skill in climbing uh, and you're facing your level six wall, uh, your venture would be at two from your skills, but if you had a climbing equipment that was level two climbing equipment, it would add two more points to your venture. Incidentally, weapons would fall under this category as well. So they call out in the rule book, I believe the example is still there from the playtest, uh, that one could have a level three or level four sword. Uh, and that just means your attacks with that weapon add three or four to your venture. So higher level equipment uh, can be really helpful, just like skills and uh, can, can really skew the success uh, probabilities on these difficulties. So it may require some getting used to as a GM and where you set these difficulties uh, so they don't become trivialized by even limited number of skills uh, and equipment applied to a particular challenge. But we'll get to some ways where it's actually very easy to tip that balance back in favor of GMs abusing players where it should be. Wait, GMs abusing players? Yes. Uh, the GM's having the, the, the power to have uh, unreasonable demands placed on players that just lead them to be uh, collectors of anguish and injuries. Uh, in addition to skills, circumstances, and equipment, spells can contribute to a venture, and they can really do so in two ways. Um, most directly, and I don't, know if, I don't know what the proportion is, so I'd say most spells, but if you cast a spell to overcome a challenge... Uh, you get a bonus equal to that level of spell unless the spell is stated that it has some other effect uh, on your venture. So uh, a, a typical example might be if a weaver is going to create a, uh, uh, an energy ladder that goes up the, the wall, the level of that energy ladder is going to add directly to the venture. If it's a level three weave to create that ladder, that's three uh three more points to your venture. Though there are spells that instead say something like uh, you know, a level four spell that may uh, in, uh, give you two bene uh, in your might pool for an hour. Well, when you cast that, it is not targeted at an individual challenge. So you get the benefit of the bene's that you might spend for whatever you want to spend within that hour. But that spell level does not directly contribute to an individual challenge because instead it's giving you a series of bonuses over a period of time. 
Um, so watch the language of the spells to see whether they, they contribute directly to the venture or they instead give you more resources over some period of time that you could apply to the venture. Most often this is the case because of another way you can add to your venture, which are these bines that I've been talking about. These are your pool points uh, in things like physicality and movement and intellect. You can spend a bene from one of your pools to add a plus one bonus to your venture. Starting characters can only spend one bene uh, from a pool on any given challenge. Um, there are secrets you can learn later in the game, one in particular called Expansive Endeavor, that might increase the number of benes you can spend for a given action. But at the starting place, without those secrets, you could only spend one bene to contribute to a, a single venture. Is now the time to talk about enhancements? Um, sure. So it is useful to distinguish between binets and enhancements. This is a key distinction that I've seen a lot of questions about online. So binets, as, as I said, was uh, are basically a plus one bonus to your venture. So if you're climbing that wall and you want to increase your venture by one, you might spend a point of physicality. And there's some flexibility here. Um, a kind and flexible GM might say you could spend a point of intellect and say you want to kind of analyze the wall and decide what the best path up the wall would be. Spend an intellect binet, add one to your venture or physicality because you just want to physically you know, power up the wall uh, as you're just climbing up on uh, based on your own might. So there's some flexibility, but you only get one binet per challenge unless there are other secrets that expand your capabilities. An enhancement is not a bonus point to your venture. It is a bonus die. This is, uh, you know, so instead of adding one to uh, your your venture, it instead lets you roll a, an additional die to, uh, so maybe climbing up that wall, inst instead of uh, rolling one die to beat level six, you are going to be rolling two dice. And it, uh, if either of them succeeds, you get up that wall. If you have that enhancement. Uh, and where do you get enhancements from? The typical place to get enhancements from would be Sortilage. Or a spell might give you an enhancement. It would say plus one die. Uh, and if you're casting spells, you will often get a magical die to roll along with uh, your your mundane die uh, to overcome a, a, a mundane challenge. It's important to note, though, you can't combine these. If you're adding a die because you're using a spell that adds a die, you cannot then add a second die, which would be your third total dice, um, from Sortilage. You have to choose whether you're getting a, an enhancement from a spell or an enhancement from a uh, Sortilage, again, until you learn secrets that let you break rules. Cool. Uh, you could also, so again, I just want to distinguish enhancements are different than binets. Enhancements are extra dice. Binets are adding to your venture, which is what we're actually talking about today. Uh, you could also spend hidden knowledge. Uh, to increase your venture. Now, this is not the same thing as spending a binet. So you can stack this on top of spending binet, a binet. I think that hidden knowledge actually defines its points as binet, but it has the exception that you can spend one point of hidden knowledge on any, you know, to increase any venture. Okay, so maybe it's called a binet, but it doesn't really behave like them and doesn't obey their limits. Yeah, it was something that tripped us up in our in our play session this last time. 
yeah, I just treat it as a different, uh, but it, it may be called that. So I'll have to watch that language, mm-hmm. I guess. But, uh, and this is a, I think this is a fun part of the game. Um, every character starts with hidden knowledge. You can gain hidden knowledge throughout the, throughout the game. And this really lets players go wild and say, okay, um, if you spend hidden knowledge to even something as mundane as climbing a wall, what sort of secret knowledge have you gained through your experiences as a Vizlay that would make it a little bit easier for you to climb this wall? What hidden knowledge makes you more capable than would otherwise be the case? And you just throw it to the player then and say, you, you can get this bonus, but only if you describe what hidden knowledge you have learned that helps you climb this wall. Yeah, some players really like doing this, and other players, oh man. <laughs> uh, this reminds me of a uh, a, a tweet, a, a sequence of tweets that was circulating a couple of days ago, um, where someone was saying, basically, my maybe uncharitable review was that not everyone likes being asked to contribute to the narrative. Mm-hmm. Not everyone likes being put on the spot and being told, hey, well, what's the name of this bar you're going to? Or tell me three interesting features about this bar. That 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 puts pressure on people. And some people don't like that pressure. And they just kind of want to play the game and be told about what's what the environment is. And they respond and have a more limited uh, uh, control of the narrative. And so I think the intent for this, this thread was um, not everyone wants to come to your session and have you just continually throw questions at them like hidden knowledge, like what secret did you learn that would help you climb this wall? Um, that, that's kind of a hard example, but imagine you're trying to persuade a guard to let you pass her to get into uh, the, 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 the hip nightclub in Fartown. You might say, well, oh, hidden knowledge could be good here. Is there something you know about the guard or some knowledge that you might be able to to trade to the guard that but would make them more amenable to letting you into the club? And then you can make that up like, oh, well, I actually know this person. And uh, let's say kind of a more devious interpretation might be, oh, I know that they have this dark secret that I would reveal if they uh, don't let me into the club. I threatened to reveal this knowledge. And that adds to my venture. Uh, or maybe more kindly say, oh, this is a friend of mine. We go way back. And so uh, we had this great time out at this particular event. And uh, she and I have been friends for a long time. And so the hidden knowledge is like some some uh, experience we shared that I can rely upon to say, hey, let me into the club. You know who I am. You know you can trust me. And we've had such great times together. I'm not going to cause you any trouble. Mm-hmm. But So you kind of write something into the story about something you've learned in the past that can help you overcome this particular challenge. That is a fun mechanic for a lot of people. It is not for everybody. And so some people may not spend a lot of it. Some people may spend it like uh, it was going out of style. Uh, And the the game sort of lets you do that or not. But mechanically how it operates is a hidden knowledge adds uh, plus one to your venture and creates a space for you to create. Yeah, and going back on that uh, creating and adding to the narrative... I mean, if you've got players that don't, you know, don't look forward to this or actively dread it, don't don't turn it back on them. Just, you know, source the table. You you're probably going to have other players who are totally into throwing out ideas uh, for anybody's hidden knowledge. And you have you'll probably have some players who would appreciate that. Absolutely. So, again, I've my initial reaction to that tweet thread uh, was kind of negative saying, well, you know, 
don't say I can't do this because you don't like me. You, you don't like to, it's not your type of fun. And I don't think that's the spirit in which the tweet was written. Um, though it, it bordered on that. It was very much, I don't like this. This is wrong, wrong, bad fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, what, what really the intention was, was there is this narrative control notion that players want to contribute to the setting and to the game. And they like the, they, they like being the table being sourced has become so popular that people sometimes forget that there are, there's a group of players for whom that's not the experience they want. Uh, and we should have room in our games for for both types of players. And so it's not that a player who doesn't want to use hidden knowledge and spontaneously come up with these stories that they're making up and adding to the setting, that they're doing the game, that they're playing the game wrong, that they're playing the, the game less. It's just they're contributing to the game in different ways and understand people will contribute in different ways. Uh, don't force people to, to play in one particular way versus another. And I think that's really the spirit uh, that I kind of came to after my initial negative reaction to the thread. Uh, and I think that is an important lesson, especially in a game like this, as we've emphasized throughout uh, over two years of episodes now, this game creates a lot of space for the players to create through their characters, to create parts of the setting, to create parts of uh, aspects of their character, uh, and to build these into every part of the game. That can be a lot of a burden for players who are more introverted, um, players who are newer to the game or newer to role-playing, uh, and that's okay. And, uh, and so if people aren't spending their hidden knowledge uh, and they're not just naming every bar you go by as you, as the GM gives them that opportunity, that's okay. Let them find the fun they want to find in the game. And I believe Invisible Sun is a game that while it has a space for all of that contribution, it also has a space for people who don't want to be making those types of contributions spontaneously uh, to contribute in, in, in other ways uh, and to have their own type of fun at the same table as someone else who's spending hidden knowledge three times a session or something along those lines. So, you know, get to know your players, what they want out of the game and let the game give them the experience and the fun that they want. As long as it doesn't come at the expense of someone else's fun. Uh, I got another tip for players who don't want to come up with this stuff. Cause sometimes I don't want to when I'm playing. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll just turn to the table myself and I'll say, what do you guys think? Like, how would I know this? Like, I don't want to think about it right now. And you know what? It's totally cool. Like, it's fine. You don't need to be creative and you don't need to come up with the best idea every single time. Sometimes, yeah. you know, you, you can just turn around and ask everybody that you're sitting there with. And that's a perfectly reasonable way to go about, uh, you know, taking that narrative control that you've been given and still coming up with something that, you know, can still push things forward and answer those questions. And I would encourage people to wait for that invitation. Some, this is something I'm bad about, I have to confess. Mm. As a player, I will when people are hesitating and they're not adding, I, I might go, oh, well, what if this happens? Or what if you did this? And it's uh, it borders sometimes, on, I feel like, in retrospect, you're like, oh, like that was way too close to me playing someone else's character for them. And that that's in a, was inappropriate. So I have to really check myself because I really want to say, hey, what about this? And you could do this or... Until you sort of learn your 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 group and their dynamics and the implicit social contract between players as to what you can contribute and when you can recommend people take actions versus when you need to let them do what they want to do, 
be hesitant and wait for the invitation for someone to say, um, I'm not quite sure what hidden knowledge I would have and would apply in this circumstance. Does anyone have an idea? And then contribute rather than saying, well, you know, you, you've spent 15 seconds waiting. So now I'm going to tell you how you could play your character. So be be careful about that. And and I would say have that discussion with your group and say, how how do you want to play this? How How much room do you want to give everyone else to play their character? And how careful do we want to be to avoid uh, suggesting uh, how other players would would uh, kind of direct their character in, in the in the story, because people may have very proprietorial uh, feelings about their uh, characters and not want others to recommend what they do mm-hmm. uh, or anything along those lines. You've got to figure that out with your group. Yeah, that sounds like a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I've been bad, so I'm trying to get better about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I- I can imagine, I can imagine, uh, you know, why you might want to jump in. Uh, for me, I think it would be like seeing somebody trying to come up with an idea. Uh, I'd, I'd want to, you know, help them out and say like, hey, okay, if you can't think of something right away, like here are some ideas. But yeah, I guess you're right. It's not always correct to just say, oh, they're they're sitting there thinking. Maybe they are just spinning their wheels and they just need a little bit of a push. You don't always need that. Yeah, and, and this is not something I can give very specific advice on. We may talk about it, but it might be that it is so group specific mm-hmm. that uh, you just have to talk about it. And maybe we instead spend a segment talking about these sort of group social contracts and what they might consist of and how to learn what your group wants from the game and how to play it in both a safe way that protects people, but also in a way that encourages the uh, players to have the fun they want in the game without other people unintentionally, more often than not, stepping on that fun. Mm -hmm. The last thing as we wrap this up, uh, remember, as we talked about in a pre- in a recent segment, the Sooth deck may also contribute to a venture depending upon uh, what family and what uh, uh, schools of magic have been or colors of magic have been uh, empowered in any given uh, round or uh, on the path of suns. So we, as you can see, between skills, circumstances, equipment, spells, benes, hidden knowledge, and the Sooth deck, there are a lot of ways that players can add to their venture. Uh, and by design, then, the system opens up the possibility of your characters doing incredible things when they devote their resources to it. And th- uh, I believe, again, that's a design goal. They want a game where players are have characters that do remarkable things, do fantastical, magical things uh, every round or every challenge. Uh, because this is a game about the Im- about doing the impossible, and all of these venture options empower characters to overcome those Im- what would otherwise be impossible challenges. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled "Beyond." from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter.
And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.